the background is we were having discussions after all of the episodes and realized that we were making some really good points. Uh, <laughs> Connecting the, some dots that were just you and I were hearing. <laughs> yeah, so like, hey, let's uh, record some of these. So uh, at least a semi-regular feature, if not a regular feature, will be some of these analyses, depending on how good I guess they turn out to be. Welcome to a bonus analysis and discussion episode with the hosts of the Path Distilled podcast. In these episodes, we talk about the guests that we just had on, how it connects to the guests we've had in the past, and give our take on what you've heard. Another one in the books. That was uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I wrote it, wrote it down as he was talking. One of the things that stuck out to me um, that has nothing to do with his training, his coaching style, um, and more to do with his own mindset. But he kept using the word fortunate, and that has stood out to me with several of our our guests. Is that that seems to be the outlook they have on the things that have uh, that have come up or come available to them along their path. Well, it's interesting. One of our other guests, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. Uh, I just realized when I mentioned my own experience, I used the word I was fortunate enough. So I think it's uh, that's something we can explore, uh, maybe dig down. But and there's so much research coming out of um, you know positive psychology and and that movement from you know Marty Seligman on gratitude and just the overwhelming you know support for having that outlook. Um, and making, you know, having an actual gratitude practice where you're training yourself to see things in that way, um, that um, it seems like whether they read it somewhere or learned it, or it's just that outlook they they have for for whatever reason. Um, not quite a number of the people that we've that we've interviewed seem to have that that outlook on the things that have happened. You know, and and you're right. You and I talk about it in that way too. And as I've think about it, um, my interpretation is it's the persistence and the gratitude. And I think the persistence might lead in part to the gratitude because I don't know about you, I kind of do, but um, I won't pretend to speak on your behalf, but I know with a lot of people that we've interviewed and a lot of people that I know, a lot of the where they are is dependent in part on the steps they've taken to get there and a lot of the rejections and failures they've faced along the way. And I'm observing that and observing others trying to make it in whatever field they're in. You see how it can be leaving the meeting too soon or not being um, at the Viper room when the Miramax people were there can make, whether you end of the band or you become a, a gold selling, I guess, platinum selling record. Um, so part of the gratitude is realizing that one of those times that you put yourself out there actually paid off or the persistence of continuing to put yourself out there. So it might actually be, uh, we talk about failure as part of our success story, uh, not just for us, but for all of our guests. And I think, and I'm just speculating on the fly here, but in my impression, when you mentioned that is that part of that gratitude is from seeing all of the, how the difference between success and failure can be so thin. Yeah, and, and you're hitting at 
like a, a lot of the good science out there, which is, you know, the outlook is one thing, right? Seeing opportunity is one thing. Um, and having that outlook, there was years ago, there was a, um, I don't remember his name, but there was a researcher, I believe he was out of the UK. He has a book called The Luck Factor, but there's a 60, I think it was a 60 minutes episode that I used to show in one of my classes um, where he's profiling his research. And basically what he looked at was, you know, people who look at their lives as lucky versus, you know, look at things as being unlucky. So kind of that classic, like optimistic versus pessimistic outlook, right? Um, uh, it was really interesting. Look, you know, in the, the 60 Minutes episode, it's these two women, both named Carolyn, um, and the one sees herself as, you know, as lucky, and the other one sees herself as as unlucky. And you can, you know, he's showing them going through these ex these different experiments, um, and you can see it in them, right? Like that, that it's even in their presence, you notice the impact of of having this outlook on things, and and optimism gets a bad rep in terms of everybody thinks it's like, oh yeah, everything's amazing. You know, it's awesome. That, that's not actually what optimism is. You know, optimism is about, you know, seeing opportunity, recognizing opportunity, knowing that opportunity is possible, but also preparing for, and as you're saying, being able to handle, you know, when things don't go your way um, and not let that derail you. So, you know, one of the things that I recognized um, in this interview with Sean is, he looked at things, he kept using that word fortunate. He looked at things as opportunity, but he also set himself up for opportunity. And he also capitalized on opportunity when it did come his way, right? And I think that's tying in kind of that persistence piece you're talking about sure. also. And as you were, as we were both speaking on that, I was kind of thinking about that myself. Um, we might label it as luck because it's the time that all the effort pays off. But you have to, one has to, you know, enroll in the program or find the mentorship or even get up in the morning and put your pants on and leave the house during normal times. Yeah. It's, or in his case, you know, go to those, those conferences and those meetings with coaches, reach out to people, you know, right? Like we look at it as this thing that happened to us, not necessarily recognizing that the way that we've kind of crafted that opportunity to happen, not that that happens all the times, right? There are times where things do kind of get put in front of us um, and then we, we get to capitalize on them or not. But I think that that certainly came clear in his story that, you know, when he talked about what he has done right from the beginning of getting that high school coaching opportunity, he sought out opportunities to become a good coach to become a better coach to to you know work on his craft and um, as I said you know that's that's been a constant conversation in in sport coaching is you know it, unlike other professions there has not you know up until recently been education for them right it was you were an athlete you you decided to coach and you maybe got more and more coaching opportunities, you know, and, and maybe put more into it or less into it. Um, and that's kind of what happens. Right? Sure. And I think uh, going back to his episode, one might tell a division one quarterback that they're quote lucky or an NFL quarterback that they're quote lucky. Uh, but as he, you know, told the story about Deshaun getting up at, 
really early in the morning, putting in the work, thinking about it all the time, seeking out. And so same scenario, uh, yep. the people that are putting in the work are going to have the opportunities come their way. It's um, now that granted one can put in the work and the NFL door can close, but there's nothing necessarily lucky about the ones that are making it through the door. It's uh no, oh, I love with that story he told about Deshaun and you know the conversation and practice, right? Of like what was he doing, and he was visualizing and really thinking about you know this one team and what he's working on that. And I think like that that to me when he was talking about that, I'm like that is the epitome of what we're trying to do with this podcast, right? That idea of what's underneath the iceberg, because you know the person watching him play in the NFL does not see that, right? Like they don't see all this other stuff that goes into, you know, what got him there in the first place, but then also what keeps him there, right? And what keeps him not just there, but continuing to try and, and be better and better himself. And our guest uh, noted that he was thinking about a something a year in advance. And so that, you know, if the layperson or the non NFL player you know, this might be, you do, you look at your due dates in school, in college, and you do the things that are most, um, you know, you schedule yourself, you take care of the things that might be more difficult, need more time, you take that into account. Uh, you think about how you're going to navigate. And I know I'm, I don't want to trivialize either football or academia, but I think the idea that I'm getting at is because he knows that will they will play that opponent again and he has all these other things that he needs to do to improve his game he is actively and i again don't want to put words into his mind but he's actively taking care of these things that will improve his game as he goes along and so even though it's a year away he's not saying i'll think about it today or even the week before the game i want to be better i want to beat this team and that becomes part of his process yeah, and I think, you know, it relates to something else that piqued my interest when he was talking. He talked about the idea of guided discovery, and I think that that's, it's such an important thing for coaches and educators to to think about, right? That that idea of, and I, I found this myself, and it, it's funny when I would talk about this a lot of times in grad classes, as I was talking about it, literally, I would be doing what I was saying not to do to my students, and I would call myself out, right? Because I think when you get in a coaching or teaching position, it's easy to think like, oh, now I'm the expert, I have to tell them what to do, right? Like, that's my job. Um, but what you, what's so, so challenging to remember is you talked about that idea of guided discovery that certainly there's time for that, right? But, and there's a place for that and that's part of the job. But the other part of the job is just artfully putting someone in the position to have to figure it out for themselves. And then working with them to understand what happened and why it happened and all that. You know, I have so many memories from working in the college space and I'm in no way saying that these coaches were were bad coaches um, but the biggest kind of thing that I would recognize in terms of when I would have to work on this with a coach was when I'd sit in on uh, on film sessions if the coach was the one not just the one film session but every film session doing all the talking when the athletes are passively just sitting there obviously hopefully listening right but but and trying to listen for sure, 
but their brains aren't working, right? Like the coach is doing all the telling, assuming, right? Like I'm, I'm telling them what to do. So that's going to get into their brain and then they're going to be able to do it when they get back out there. Um, but the, the power of the learning is really, you know, getting their, their brains involved and getting them to really think about and have to, to talk about things and try to figure things out for themselves as well. And then you bring that expert knowledge in. Um, and yeah. so, you know, an athlete like Deshaun is, is, has developed his ability to work on the game and ask questions and, and know what to, to ask these coaches to, to watch or observe because he has, you know, really become that, that idea that everybody talks about, like the student of the game. Um, and likely had coaches along the way that helped him develop that in himself. thought the point that both of you made, you and Sean, during the episode that when a player does that, they don't end a play and look over at me like, what just happened or what do I need to do now? They kind of absorb that and incorporate that into their own uh, game. And then I was going to mention this during the episode, but I didn't have a chance to do this. But it's kind of a personal anecdote, but my brother – is years older than me by over a decade. And so he had kind of a parental role in my life. And one of the things that he used to ask me, particularly when I was in the younger years, when, um, you know, childhood type viewpoints or didn't always make sense in what one was doing, he would ask me, what are you attempting to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And I, it seemed subtle at the time, but I think either I had the same outlook because we're from the same family or he helped instill that in me. But I think that's kind of what we're getting at is um, what training the, the player or the student, whatever the case may be, what is it that you're looking for and why and how does it relate to the ultimate goal is very important for anyone to learn. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with, you know, I've worked with professional, you know, professional sport and Olympic sport coaches who their biggest frustration is that the athletes, even at that level, some of them don't know how to make decisions on their own or what questions to ask. And, you know, we get into these conversations about, well, unfortunately they then haven't had the opportunities along the way getting to this point to have had the ability to, to, to learn that way. They've just been told what to do. Um, and then it's, it's hard. Right. And, and I get it in a lot of ways. I experience this as a, as a performance coach too in the work that I do. People want to be told what to do, right? Like, just tell me what to do, you know? Um, and part because I think we, we are always searching for that easy solution, right? Like the, the, the example that always comes to mind to me is like, none of us, right? Like the majority of us, if we want to lose weight, we're not like, okay, awesome. So for the next year, I'm going to work on this, right? Like we're in search of that diet pill or whatever, that's going to like, give it to me right now, right? Um, Because of that instant gratification, that's only getting stronger as as the world changes and we have the opportunity for more instant gratification, right? So there's always that at work, but then there's also at work, you know, what he talked about, which is, sometimes we don't we don't like messy we don't like that we're gonna have to fail over and over and over again to succeed right and so i think that's a lot of times both of those things are at work on both sides on the side of the coach and on the side of the the athlete um to just to be able to do things more simply and quickly to get to success when you know that was what Anders always talked about right like that's not it's not going to get you to expertise. It might get you to a particular point, right? Certainly. Um, But 
it's going to become a limitation at some point. That's you're exactly right. That's the downfall. A seven and three high school coach or a coach that's seven and three in high school football every year will probably keep his job. Um, and so it's easy if I've done this for 20 years and I don't have to be uncomfortable and my players are moderately successful. I'm not, um, whatever the case may be, but yeah, it's exactly what you're hitting at. I and can... to Sean's point, right? Like they're, they're, yeah, sure. There are some, or some coaches, some people out there that know that they're doing that, right? Like, and, and choose to do that, right? Like I'm great. You know, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I think there are a lot that are just, you know, human nature. We're uncomfortable with change, right? And I, or, you know, change might mean challenge, you know, and, and that might mean losing my job. You know, like there's, there's a lot of forces at work, I think, sometimes outside of these people. And I think, honestly, sometimes the, the people just don't know any, any better or different, right? So to his point, like there are a lot of good coaches out there that, um, and there also maybe are some some coaches out there that don't know they're not good, right? They're not trying to be bad <laughs> coaches. They just don't, you know, kind of circling back. They're they haven't had that that education, you know, available to them to help them understand and really look at like, oh, okay, like this is this is why maybe this works and this is why maybe this needs to be something I improve or change. I think for four or five hundred years it's been fashionable to talk about how quickly and naturally things come. Mm -hmm. This messy part is only the last couple of decades that we've really, people have been interested at least lately in modern times. So I think that's been. Also increased competition. <laughs> and you and I have talked about this, the fallout of the self-esteem movement. That's what a lot of people call it, right? Like that, you know, that, that we talk about it with, with, uh, uh, Dr. Orbe Austin, right, when she talks about imposter syndrome, that, you know, 60s and 70s, there was this research coming out on, um, you know, I think it was a lot of correlational research, so we know the flaws in that, but a lot of research on, oh, wow, self-esteem is really important, like, it's really important that people feel good about themselves, and it seems to have long, you know, there's benefits in all these different areas, it's correlated to all these different things, and it's correlated to long, you know, you know, long-term effects, and so then everybody's like, awesome. Like, we need to bring this into schools. We need to make kids feel good about themselves. That's when you started seeing participation. You know, everybody gets a trophy. And, and then now all of a sudden, you know, now we're looking back, we're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that might have been a flawed assumption. Like, yes, people should feel good about themselves. But we might also need to make sure that people can handle when they don't feel good about themselves or when they're experiencing failure or, you know, they're experiencing adversity and challenge, like that also, that might be a really useful skill because that's what actually happens in life. <laughs> and I've, I've, we've talked at some point, it might've been personally, even uh, feedback on papers can be devastating if someone's never had that before. Mm -hmm. But I think it's the flip side of that coin. The first time something's, any challenging at all sometimes people that have yet to experience that might find that they might interpret that as it not being their field or their something they should pursue Whereas well that's what i was going to say so that ties into carol dweck's life's work right like on the idea of growth versus fixed mindset right what tends to happen is that we then look at that as like we personalize it oh i'm not good at this and there are ways that you know even you know i talk about this all the time like I, and something that Carol Dweck 
is very clear on, I think that, you know, you can have an overall, you can have a growth mindset, right? Like I think I have a growth mindset, but there's some things I kept myself having a fixed mindset about, like I'm not good at math. Well, no, you're not good at math because you say you're not good at math. So you don't <laughs> invest in trying to be good at math. And maybe you shouldn't invest in being good at math. There's calculators now. I don't really have to be good at math, right? But um, what if my outlook on that was something that I really did actually need to have a growth mindset for, right? Like that fixed mindset was a limiting factor for me in being able to grow in a way that I needed to, to become better, to perform better. And I think, you know, to getting back to Sean's episode, you know, tugging, it seems like his philosophy and his approach really helps these athletes, um, whether if they have that mindset already, then it helps, you know, continue to foster it. But if they show up and they don't have that mindset, I think it sets them off on a good path for understanding that I need to be able to have kind of this outlook and this ability to, to uh, be able to, as you were talking about, um, not just uh, not just be able to handle you know these challenges and all that, but persist through them. Yeah, and then that gets into uh, Duckworth, right, with uh, grit. So sticking with it, and so the kind of the combination of the growth mindset with the deliberate practice idea over time, which would be the grit part, kind of is a a theme that we would at least argue and it seems to be appearing in these episodes. Yeah. One thing I loved and I can't, it's been a while since I've read uh, Duckworth's book grit. And I also once saw her speak when I was still living in, in South Florida. And so I can't remember if it was in the book or from when I saw her speak or something else I saw from her. But I remember one thing she said that stood out to me was grit is not, I'm going to probably butcher the way she said it, but this is how I remember it. Uh, grit is not, you know, getting on the treadmill and staying on it, you know, for a hard workout and getting off. It's getting on the treadmill, staying on it for a hard workout, getting off, getting back on it the next day, staying on it for the you know, hard workout, getting off, getting back on it the next day and staying on it for the hard, you know, right? And so it's this repeated persistence for something that you want to persist at. Sure. And I would add... Um, strategically, I need, I would include in grit part of the planning. So I need to do this amount because it's a long-term goal. And I know the, I'm kind of adding, taking liberty with her definition, but in the way that we use it, I think it has to be, I want to achieve this particular goal. And so part of the long-term involvement would have to be, um, how am I going to reach those goals? And so, um, I, so you know how it is. People encounter something, it's fun at first, and then it starts getting hard. And no, you're like, well, effect. yeah, yeah, sure. I'm yeah. not going to plan. I'm not even going to think about this anymore. So I think that is what I'm getting at. You have to include the planning and the thought, um, Deshaun, using the time to think about the next opponent a year in advance would be grittiness in my. But I think also, you know, Duckworth uses the idea of you know, passion and persistence, but the way I look at it is like loving that, right? Like, like it, like that you love the challenge. Like you might not love it in the moment. Right. And, and Anders always talked about that, right? Like that it was a part of the deliberate practice definition is that it's, it's not inherently enjoyable, right? What you're doing or what you're experiencing. But I think 
I think that part gets misunderstood too. Like in the moment, yeah, it, it sucks, right? Like, <laughs> but you love it, right? Like you love what you're doing oh. and you want to pursue it enough. You know, it matters to you. It's important to you. So, and your outlook is that, yeah, this is hard, but hard is good. Sure. You know, and, I, and I think that piece of it, like I used to talk to college athletes and teams I worked with a lot because they'd be like, practice isn't fun. Like we just want practice to be fun. And I'm like, no, practice shouldn't be, be fun. Effective. You want it to be effective, but you have to learn, it's, you have to learn how that tough stuff can be fun or can be enjoyable, right? Like you have to learn to, to feel that way and to look at it that way um, rather than just wanting it to be, to be fun. And so if I'm an NFL quarterback, it might be making that defensive back look silly that particular game the next time we play them. Uh, so all that time that I've worked towards that goal, or if it's the weight loss goal, um, it might be the ultimate end game. If it's the pole vaulter, it might be the highest jump you've ever made. And if it's launching a podcast, it's getting the podcast launched. Yeah, or not even an, an outcome goal like that, but just the process of it, right? Like loving that, that process of like, okay, so maybe I didn't, you know, beat someone today or like Sean was talking about, like practice was awful today, but I'm so excited about the fact that this awful practice is going to lead to something mm. better down the road. Because to your point, we strategically planned, right? We strategically planned this, you know, that deliberate practice, that true deliberate practice idea, like this was planned to set me up for something I'm trying to become better at or achieve down the road. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Sean's description of practice where they work on things that one might not, of course others have mentioned it, but working on things that one might not be as good at is exactly fits the model as proposed originally of deliberate practice. Yeah, he mentioned, you know, the idea of 10,000 hours really relative to himself in terms of development as a coach, but what he was talking about in terms of how he, what he's done throughout the course of the hours he's put in and how he sets up the hours of, for training for the athletes he works with, you're absolutely right, like that, it is, you know, absolutely characteristic of that idea of deliberate practice. Well, that plus the, uh, things that in the original not to get too in the books but uh the mo moving to move uh working to move beyond your current level of mm -hmm. capability and you can't do that if you're only working on things that you're al already good at uh, you'd have to pick some of the things that you're not necessarily excelling at well that's what we were just talking about right like sure it feels great who doesn't love doing the things they're good at right like it feels great and sometimes you do need to do that like i don't think you know that I, I don't I don't think that, correct me if I'm wrong, because you would know better than I would, but I don't think that Anders ever meant like you don't practice the things that you're good at. Like you obviously have to keep those up to a level and there is some, you know, mental benefits to, to doing the things that you're good at and feeling good about that, right? To, to balance that, that out. But, um, but yes, if you're only just doing that, right? Like if I go out and just do you know, what I'm good at every day, I'm not, I'm just going to keep that stuff good. Right. And, and maybe that's, what, maybe that's what I need because that's what I want to do, or that's what my performance requires is to just keep doing what I already do really well. And I think I can 
put it in a nutshell. I know we need to wrap up, but I can put it in, in a nutshell with uh, tennis. If, if I'm a good server and I'm a good, I have a good forehands, but my backhand and my return, uh, serve return is horrible. I can't just work on the forehand and the, the serve. I also, before I can, it would make sense to advance those. I can still advance those skills down the road or even in the moment, but I definitely need to work on things that, you know, may not be as comfortable. The, uh, the backhand and the, uh, the re returning the serve are going to have to get worked on. And that's simplified version of it, but I think it illustrates the need, um, you know, with the ice skaters, that's one of the early things where they physically hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't, if there's an association, <laughs> they might not want to hear that, but they're taking the falls, trying to, uh, X games, the people that do yeah. the bike tricks, they're landing on the ground when they're learning the tricks, they're not <laughs> doing this without uh, risk. And so even that, uh, to push to the next level, you might have to do things that you're essentially failing repeatedly. And that can be really hard if you don't have the outlook that supports that, you know, if you, if you haven't developed that, if you're a perfectionist, right, and you, you want to always do things to a certain level, um, or if there is, you know, some sort of time pressure or constraint on, you know, how much time you have to work on something, right, you know, this is especially true in, in sport when, you know, it is very, very real that not all sports, you know, can be done, you know, throughout the lifespan, right, in terms of getting to a certain level, right, or, or performing at a certain level. Um, so, you know, that can make, that can make adopting this, this mindset that we're talking about and, you know, doing kind of actual deliberate practice that can make it challenging. We'll save uh, another bonus episode for getting into the how uh, the growth mindset and grit and even deliberate practice have been adopted and modified, which in some cases have gotten way off the way they were originally intended to be used yeah. or what they mean. So. But, I mean, that happens to everything, right? I mean, that's the, the mindfulness craze. That's the, you know, even what Sean was talking about mental toughness for a while, that was, you know, the, the big word that got used and people didn't understand what it was. <laughs> um, so that happens to everything. Path Stilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by the Path Distilled, all rights reserved. <laughs>